Welcome everyone to a very special episode of AbbeyCast today. We've shifted our podcast studio today from the Spirituality Center office to the Dalesford Abbey chapter room. And today we're very grateful to have with us Father Andrew Saferni and Abbot Dominic Rossi of the Norbertine community here at Dalesford Abbey. This episode was actually prompted by Abbot Dominic who is thinking about um, the prominence of the liturgy within the Norbertine community here at Dalesford and within their charism. And who better to have on to talk about liturgy than the liturgist himself, Father Andrew Saferni. So, Abbot Dominic, you want to share a little bit more about what inspired this conversation today? Well, I mean, liturgy really is at the heart of our Norbertine life. And uh, I've been um, a confrere of Father Andrew's for many, many years. Uh, I don't even know the number of years, but a long time. And uh, what strikes me is that uh, Father Andrew and I come from very, very similar backgrounds, if I could just sh share. Um, we grew up only a few blocks from each other. Our baptismal names are the same, Dominic. The, nicknames, the, the nickname that our families gave us was the same, Donnie. Um, and we went to the same high school, and we entered the same community. But what strikes me is that... Um, even though we have such a similar background, by the way, another similarity is our, our almost ritualizing Italian cuisine <laughs> and food in our families, and our mothers were both excellent cooks. Uh, but what strikes me is that even though our, our background is so similar, um, Andrew, you developed a, a strong love for the liturgy. Now, I don't want to say, I don't have a dislike for the liturgy. I celebrate it. I, I enjoy it. Right. But you have a very particular love for the liturgy, and I was wondering how you were led to that. Well, uh, you've touched on it uh, already because uh, it is something that I've given some thought to later in life. But um, these are thoughts that I've had about why I went in the direction that I've gone into. And the first one is... Uh, is this family background, uh, this uh, South Philadelphia, very uh, blue-collar immigrant culture, uh, very Catholic. So uh, I can remember as a very, very small boy uh, being taken to uh, Mass every Sunday in the basement church of St. Monica's where the homily was in Italian. But I think the, 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 the element that gave me this sense of church year was the way we ate. First of all, as, as you mentioned, both of us had uh, mothers and grandmothers who were just excellent cooks. But what I remember is that certain things were ate, eaten only at certain times of the year. Mm. So uh, we knew it was Christmas because of a certain kind of cookie. We knew that it was New Year's because of a certain kind of soup. We knew that it was Easter because we bought a whole lamb. And so I had this sense of a shape of time that came through eating. Mm. And, and so that was one thing. The other, I'm not quite sure where it came from. And I don't know, I'd have to maybe do more conversation with a neuropsychologist, but 
I think there was just something within me that was drawn towards uh, ritual. Now, I'd have to say that developed uh, throughout my life. In other words, that already when I was in grade school and high school, uh, when I was in high school, I would go to the main library up at Logan Circle, and I would look for books about church, I mean, about the, the, the history of the church and the ritual of the church. And when I joined the Norbertines, that, people already knew that I had this interest. But it was only then, uh, when I joined the Norbertines, that I discovered you could study this. You could, you could go to school for this. And so um, I was uh, uh, hoping to go to the summer school at the University of Notre Dame and do a master's in, um, in liturgy and then go to uh, Bishop Newman High School and teach religion, uh, but that a large part of that would be the teaching of the liturgy. But God always has surprises. Mm -hmm. And uh, we had become an independent community from St. Norbert Abbey in De Pere. And at that time, every abbey had its own theologate. And Abbot Neitzel was looking to send people away to study. And um, I remember it was February of uh, 1965. And he sa uh, said, you know, what are you looking to do? And I said, I'd like to do this master's at Notre Dame and then teach high school. And he said, well, I have another uh, proposition that you would go to Europe and do uh, what is called a license, which is between, in the European system, is between a master's and a doctorate. And you would do that in theology, and then come back and teach a year or two, and then go back and do a doctorate in liturgy. And I thought, what more could my sweet Jesus do? <laughs> Have you been to Europe before? No, not at all, okay. not at all. So no, it was, Quite and, and, so I wind up in Rome in the fall of 1965, the last session of the Second Vatican Council. So, I mean, that was such a privileged event and shaped me even more deeply because all of the revised rituals were coming out. I mean, like... One know, after the other. Yeah, I mean, you couldn't keep up with it. And um, so when I came back to the United States thinking I was going to teach a year or two and then uh, return to Europe. I was ordained in 1968, which was quite a momentous year. Mm -hmm. The riots at the Chicago Democratic Convention, assassination of uh, Martin Luther King and uh, Robert Kennedy. And so uh, I knew that if I was going to be a priest in this country, um, I, had to, I had to stay here rather than go mm -hmm. to Europe. And so I entered the program at the University of Notre Dame and did a doctorate about the liturgy of the order. Mm -hmm. But what, not to take up the whole uh, <laughs> event here. No, no. The, what, what I realize is that as I was doing this, I was also developing in my thought about the liturgy. Mm -hmm. So that I moved from, I would say like, the churchy state, I mean, where it was like, sort of like fascination with the liturgy, that in my study of theology and the study of the liturgy at Notre Dame, I came to see the liturgy as uh, the source, what the Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy says, as the source and the summit of the Christian life, that, that what is happening in our day-to-day -day life 
comes ex to expression in the liturgy, and the quality of the celebration of that has a direct effect then on the quality of the life that goes, comes from that. So we, we get on Sunday uh, the liturgy that we deserve from the week that we've led. And uh, so that, that was a real deepening. But I would say in the last decade, maybe more, it, I've come to see the liturgy as a truly contemplative act. And it's very interesting in the uh, rewriting of our Norbertine constitutions, how many of our European abbeys speak about the, when they're speaking about the contemplative aspect of our life, they're making direct reference to the liturgy. So that affects the way I see the liturgy being celebrated. Does it have this contemplative dimension? So uh, um, the uh, thing that I recall was that uh, you were in Europe and I was here, I was a novice or mm -hmm. young seminarian, um, and the Abbey was very eager to adapt the, the forms, or mm -hmm. adopt the forms, rather, of uh, Vatican II Correct. around the liturgy. And we were engaging the, the people, the laity, and we had a lot of singing. Uh, and, and some of the things that we did probably were... Uh, bizarre. <laughs> no, well, I don't know if I would say bizarre, but at least uh, we, we, we stretched the limits a little bit right. as, as we were trying to learn. Yes. But when you came back to the Abbey, you gave it a much... Uh, um, you gave it a different sense, a different level, a different quality. By the way, what I didn't say at the beginning, what I should have said is that you are, you have been a well-respected liturgist in this country. A lot of people mm -hmm. know you for right. your, your uh, liturgical expertise. Um, and of course in the Europe and in uh, the order in general, you are well known for that. Um, so I wanted to say, I wanted to ask you another question um, what do you experience in liturgy that maybe many of us don't? What, what's the qualitative difference? So, like, for me, um, I don't know if I can say this simply, but uh, if, if people are engaged, if people are somehow responding to the scriptures, if there's good singing, um, if the sense of prayer is there, I'm happy. But I, th I have the sense that you have a much deeper understanding and appreciation for liturgy. And I'm just wondering, what do you experience? Um, that's a really tough question to answer. First of all, let me say this. Um, we have three meals a day. And um, I don't think any of us have any thought or remembrance of what we had for lunch last Wednesday. All right. And in some ways, that's the way the liturgy works. In other words, it, it, it's sort of the, the meat and potatoes of our spiritual life. And I don't have any expectation that at every liturgy, I'm going to have a really, I don't know what to call it, a high and mystical experience, a sense of falling into the groove, of really being at one with everyone who is at worship there, and even a sense of being at one with creation, with God and creation. That doesn't happen. Doesn't happen even every Sunday. It happened recently for me 
and our celebration of Good Friday. Maybe it was because we hadn't been able to do that for two years. That fact we had so many lay people back. Some people were crying at the fact that they could be back together in the body. And it was one of those uh, times when everything was going smoothly. The quality of the music, of the ritual, and, and of the preaching. And it just, it just was one of those memorable liturgies. I don't, I don't think that every liturgy is meant to be memorable. I think it's meant to be, uh, is the word proclaimed well? Is the ritual done simply and without, uh, yeah, without unnecessary elements? Is it, is it, focused, is it focused on God? Mm. I think one of the, the big challenges of a liturgy in the United States is how often you, one could get the impression that maybe the presider has an unconscious feeling that this is more about him. So, so for example, uh, that what, what is a presider doing in the introduction to the liturgy? Because I, I think this has really died down here at Dalesford Abbey, but that I think we used to have more of this, and there's still out there a lot, this sense that the presider, after saying, the Lord be with you, it has, has this Johnny Carson need of, of getting everybody with him so that there are places where you would think there was a rubric that said, the liturgy must be introduced by a joke. There, there is no need for the, if, if the presider is praying from the interior, the text that the church gives him, this should, this should work, this should work. And so, um, yeah, so all of those elements uh, come in there, that there are, there, the very nature of, of some celebrations, the Easter Vigil, the Triduum, uh, the Midnight Mass of Christmas, just the very nature of those uh, might very well uh, have a more emotional effect on us. But I, from day to day, I don't, I don't know if I experience the, the liturgy all that much different from anyone else. The, what is it, the occupational hazard, of course, of being a liturgist is that I'm experiencing this. And I am noticing that this person is being, you know, drawing the liturgy a little bit too much to himself, or uh, he's doing something with the liturgy that does not really seem appropriate to the to the liturgy and I'm not I'm not talking about a rigid rubricism I'm talking about just kind of going off track in in some way here would be a good example of of not trusting the ritual so a person is celebrating baptism and is giving a constant running Brahmin commentary as he's celebrating the sacrament I think if a person feels, if a priest feels or a deacon feels that they need that, that ought to be part of the preparation for the sacrament of baptism because otherwise it's, it's pulling from the force of the, of the text and the rite. So when you were talking about the presider, making it more about the presider than God, right. um, it makes me think of the podcast that I had done with Gareth Haynes, our music director here at the Abbey, and he talked about 
how his role as the cantor, as the music director, cantor and mass specifically, is not to be the performer, right? right. It's about, and these are my words, but the practice, like entering into right. that spiritual practice, like you said, getting into the group. Right. And actually, I have, I have a question, um, because you said from the time you were young, you kind of had this uh, sense, this call to ritual and its right. place within your life. Um, did you get that? You used the word mystical sense. Did you kind of get that as a kid, that there was some degree of great connection here within ritual? I, I, I think so, as I, you know, when I, I, I went to Mass, I mean, I, whenever I could, I went to daily Mass. I also, in sixth grade, uh, I had my parents take me to Kilner's. Kilner's was the, the big, doesn't exist anymore, it was the big Catholic goods place on Arch Street. Okay. And I got a daily missile in English and Latin. I, real, I realized later it was edited by uh, a Benedictine Cabrol. If I, if I, I really wish that I had not, I don't know what happened to it, but it, it really, uh, again, had, I think that what I got, I don't know if it was mystical, but a sense of connection with the church uh, in the same way as um, this connection at home. Like, for, for example, the way things are handled. Uh, we never had in our family, and I'm sure this is true for Dominic, we never had this uh, silly idea that the man of the house should cut the meat up, all right? This, no, men should not do that, all right? And I could remember on Easter that my grandmother bringing out this plate of lamb, you know, in which every piece was sliced and plate, you know, and there was a reverence in that that I connect directly with the way I handle the vessels at the altar. Yeah. And I think, I think that, so having this uh, Latin-English missal in the sixth grade when I hadn't studied Latin yet, and that sense of um, you know, the reverence for food and drink, all of that kind of came together that gave me a section, a, a, a sense of, I know where I come from. I know to whom I belong. Uh, and I, I think whether you're a Christian or, or a Buddhist, I mean, everyone is looking for that. This is where I belong. This is where I come from. Hmm. And I think, I think that, now again, <laughs> that wasn't, I mean, that was happening, yeah. but it was not conscious, yeah. all right? I got a language for that later. Right, mm -hmm. I think ah, that 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 that's what's going. And that's on. interesting that you mentioned that um, you know to whom I belong. Right, that's from Jonah. Right, who are your people? Yes. And um, you know, in that you know, we've talked about this before, uh, Father Andrew, you and I about you know Jungian psychology and entering right. into the belly of the whale. Right. Yes. Ritual is in part uh, helping us accomplish that task of bringing our unconscious awareness to conscious Absolutely, awareness. Absolutely. Yeah. So we can recognize, like you've right. gone into before with the Eucharist, right. that it's all holy, it's all yeah. sacred. Right. Right? Yeah. yeah. Uh -huh. so, so for example, uh, I would say uh, one of the most recent levels is something that we have talked about a lot, and that is uh, Tyard. I mean, the effect for me on uh, in the Eucharist of his... Uh, Mass upon the world. Yes. I mean, this sense of that, that when uh, I am calling down the Spirit upon the bread, 
I'm calling down the spirit upon all of creation. Mm -hmm. I mean, that, that, that it, this universal sacrality of all of creation. So I think that, that I've been you know, led to that in a special way through the liturgy. Hmm. Yeah. You know, one of the things that you said about the, the way your family approached uh, the meal or right. certain seasons of the year, it, it reminded me of um, uh, my mother was born in Sicily and her, of course her parents were Sicilian. And every time my mother would enter the house of my grandparents or leave, the first thing she would say and the last thing she would say Sabenedic, may you be blessed. Mm. If she didn't say that, like my grandfather would take offense, he would be hurt. Sabenedic, mm -hmm. and it's kind of like the Catholic, the Lord be with you, and everybody responds, yes. and with your spirit. Yes. So it's like natural. Right. And, and the other thing that I thought of when you were speaking was um, the liturgy itself has its own form. So it's not necessary to say, Good morning, how you doing at the beginning of the liturgy? <laughs> we begin in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, the Lord be with you. That's the beginning of the liturgy. Right. Now, I mean, it's whatever people do is done you know, with sincerity, but, but the liturgy itself is, I think, um, the, the, the form of the liturgy is supposed to carry us into that place of contemplation. Now, you, I think you already answered this partially, but maybe you want to amplify it a little bit. How would you uh, define a successful liturgy? Hmm. That, that, that's tough. I mean, we, we talk about that in, in graduate school. Uh, yes. Uh, well, I, I would say, uh, first of all, I would start at the level of the material. You know, we, we, we know from the life of St. Norbert. Norbert said, let your faith be known at the altar. He was concerned about the cleanliness and the propriety of, of the altar. I mean, it was, and, and that would be a, a great beginning point. I mean, what's, what's the space like? Is the space cluttered? So just as, as we, can, we can be drawing attention to ourselves rather than the focus being the worship of, of Almighty God, we can be the focus on, on the altar, on the bread, the wine, on the book, can get distracted by, you know, too, too, much, too much stuff. You know, is, it, is, is the place clean, appropriate? Uh, is it uh, seasonally? Uh, do I have a sense of the season? Uh, so that, that, just to start at that level. And then I would say, uh, is, is the, has the music been chosen well and rehearsed so that it's not, you know, a kind of stumbling? I, I would say, uh, by the way, uh, we are exceptionally blessed with our music director, when you were talking about Gareth. For a person at that age to be so self-emptying in what he does, I mean, he, he is a consummate musician. And you never have now the slightest effect, uh, sense that he's doing this is about me. Now part of that could be because he's raised in in a church family, mm -hmm. but but he has this incredible talent that he combines with a real sense of of faith. So that that's that's the other thing. Uh, do I have a, a sense that these are 
faith-filled ministers. So, So for example, you could have someone who is a superb reader and still not have a sense that it's coming from the inside, that it's autobiographical. You can have that, you can have that sense about any or all of the ministers. So I think uh, that, that that's a, another element that I would say you know, make, makes uh, for a successful liturgy. I think that the, the quality of preaching is, is really critical. Uh, is, the, is the scripture opened up? Uh, I, again, I don't, we have a homily every day. I don't expect that every day uh, John Chrysostom is going to be uh, you know, embodied in the homily at the Abbey, but, but I, that, that, that often, that I would have a sense of, um, if nothing else, that the, the preacher has entered into the word and that gets communicated to me. Right. It, it, that, it, it may not be um, you know, great eloquence. It, and th- this is, uh, this is a, an important thing because I, I also taught homiletics. I need to be very careful about making uh, uh, an assessment of a homily, especially in a community I don't know, because the preacher is perceived by the community, it can be perceived by the community quite differently than I perceive him because of his pastoral care outside the liturgy. So they they may know the quality of his care for them, which excuses the fact that he may not be the most eloquent preacher. That, that, that. It reminds me of the story that is told about St. John Vianney, uh, who once got up. He wasn't considered brilliant <laughs> by any uh, stretch of the imagination, but he got up, and all he could do at the homily was weep. And I, mm. I think it was like for a half an hour. Mm. And the people were fed. Yeah. <laughs> and all he did was weep. Yeah. I, I used to say... Uh, you're not old enough to remember Pius XII, who was a very, he was a very noble Roman, very thin and very severe, rarely seen to, to smile. And he's followed by John XXIII, who is about four times the size of him. And, and I said, you could be seated on Pius XII's lap and feel that you were miles away. And you could be miles away from John the Twenty Third and feel like you were sitting mm, yeah, on his that's lap. That's a good, good expression. You know, because of the way. Now again, th- that's not a judgment on mm. on Pius the Twelfth. He was coming out of a certain culture and expectation. Sure. Now, John the Twenty Third came, but he broke through it. Sure. And and so that sense of the pastoral, how the pastoral life is reflected in the liturgy. So. So, for example, uh, the, the, what's the word I want to use? The normative preacher, the normative, mm-hmm. is a preacher from within the community because the, the, he is bringing to, to expression, he is bringing, he's connecting the, the scripture and the, li- the life of that community. Mm-hmm. So that was one of the documents of the bishops is in the homily, We've got God's story, the people's story, and the priest's story. 
So that the, the, the normative preacher should be coming from that community. Well, then I have to say that as the director of the Spirituality Center here hosting our retreat guests, I've heard from many retreatants who are in some cases new to the Abbey, they've never been here, um, they're quite pleasantly surprised that there is daily preaching. And maybe that's because they're not used to experiencing that, or I think it's probably because it's a greater reflection of the, the Norbertine spirit here. And, and also because we're, we're a number, of, in other words, yeah. none of us is, is, is the, the celebrant day after day after mm -hmm. day, which could be quite, quite taxing. Mm -hmm. And like you said, too, it is reflective of your pastoral life. Right. You know, I can attest to that. And the first time that I came here with my wife and my kids, you know, the, yeah. the, the two of you that I met, you were very right. hospitable and welcoming. Yeah. Um, but I even think of, you know, I'm you know, not familiar with Pius XII, a little bit right. more familiar with John the Twenty Third, but right. um, someone I am pretty familiar with is Pope Francis. Yes. And having yeah. gone to the city of Philadelphia when he was in town and, right. you know, you're in between the, the sea of people and security and barriers and there he finally in the distance, yeah. you get a sense of his person, right? You get a yeah. sense of that authenticity. Right. So, and, yeah. I, and I know there are opinions about Francis in the church mm -hmm. that differ, right? But sure. when you see that living witness of his pastoral life, right. it's pretty undeniable. Yeah, that's right. Um, this is something that's troubling to me. And I wanted to ask you, Andrew. Um, the liturgy, as I understand it, uh, especially the liturgy of the Eucharist, is, uh, is to bring us together, is to fashion us as the body of Christ. We enter into that mystery of being one in the body of Christ. And yet, liturgy uh, there, there sometimes becomes a contentious issue uh, in the church. And uh, some people get really angry about this or that, and, and it troubles me that that's the case. Uh, can you respond, reflect on that, please? Yeah, well, I mean, there'd be lots of uh, answers to that. Uh, it, it's not, liturgy is uh, a symbol system. It's carrying meanings. Uh, I uh, used to say to my students, nothing in the liturgy ever means nothing. Everything has a meaning. And this is another in a certain sense, difficult part of being a liturgist because I can be paying attention to everything from is, is the celebrant careful the way he puts his vestments on to you know, how he's using his voice, to the quality of, the, of his preaching, uh, what texts he's choosing, etc. But every, everything is carrying a meaning. It's a symbol system. So the, the question becomes, what is the symbol carrying? And what we have today, uh, in the, uh, unfortunately, uh, the church is too much reflecting what is going on in the country mm. and in the world, because that, that is, there is also a symbol system. So we see, for example, that some people have connected uh, uh, COVID vaccination as a symbol carrying a political meaning, all right? So uh, we, we see that this is a, a universal, a ritual universal. Within the, the liturgy, the church's ritual, uh, we have the same thing that, now, it could be as innocent as um, 
I find it very difficult to change. You know, I was raised in this in this ritual. Uh, I want, you know, I want to. Uh, I, I resent the fact that it's been changed. I, uh, yeah, I, I I consider myself graced that I lived in that liturgy from when I was born in 1942 until it began to change in, in the council, the period 62 to 65, and continued to a, to a new missile in, in 1980. So um, what I have tried to do uh, in the celebration for the shaping of the liturgy at Dalesford Abbey is to, not to say, Oh, I, I really miss that, and we're going to do we're going to do pre-Vatican II liturgy. Nor have I said that we are that there's nothing from that tradition that is that is worth saving. So, what in what in that tradition and history can be carried over into the into the renewed liturgy? Maybe maybe not always even a thing or a right, but a, an attitude. For example, I think that in some ways we've lost a sense of reverence that was present in the pre-Vatican II liturgy. And that can, that can be easily retrieved. But um, getting back to the question. Well, it's the, the contentiousness. Oh, Maybe yeah. I can give an example. So, like, I agree that in, in some cases the, the, the sense of reverence in the liturgy right. may be diminished. Right. But uh, the, the pendulum swinging the other direction doesn't necessarily solve the problem. No. Let me give you one example. Uh, so when we were kids, we only received the Eucharist on the tongue. Right. And then we were permitted to receive the Eucharist on the hand. And uh, some people refuse to receive it on the hand because they think it's irreverent. And, <laughs> and I guess with the COVID uh, protocols, um, it, we've gone back to receiving on the hand for sure, but uh, th that becomes a, a somewhat contentious issue for some. Uh, and, and yet, you can be reverent whether you receive it, the Eucharist on the tongue or on the hand. Right, yes. And and the, uh, the, the the because it's a symbol system, and and is carrying a meaning. The the challenge is to try to discern what that meaning is, and 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 so for example, if I take that, and I I'm I know I'm making gross generalizations here, but. Person, so for example, at St. Norbert College, where I was a little bit after Easter, it was very, very clear that, the, the pre, that though it was not forbidden, it was really preferred that no one receive on the tongue, and that that should happen, if it happens, it should happen at the end. Coming in line in communion, right in the middle of that line, a young man knelt down, and received on the tongue. About seven pe people later, a young woman did the same. Well, I think that shows, given where we were with COVID at that point, that said to me, for these two young people, it was their individual 
symbol was more important than the health of the community. So St. Augustine says in the rule, the way you may know you are making progress is when you put the good of the community before your own individual good. That was a gross violation of that, that part of the rule of Augustine in a school based on the rule of St. Augustine, St. Norbert College. But, the, but you, all, of this, all of this is a system. So for example, I'm gonna say that this is a possible scenario. A person is receiving on the tongue because their sense of who Jesus is is very individual, very individual. And it is not seen that Paul says that the, the primary meaning of the body of Christ is the community. And so if, if my um, preference is this individual, that's also going to have a sense of what happens after the Eucharist. Yes. Because the Eucharist, the, the word mass comes from ite misa es, go the church is sent. There is a sense in which the Eucharist bleeds back out into the world. Well, if, the, if the, I have received Christ with the consciousness that it is me and Jesus, that misa est is not going, it, not, it, could, it can, but it is not going to tend so much to impel me towards racial justice, towards mm. the feeding of the poor, to the right. housing of the homeless. So, yeah. so it's, it's, yeah, but, but all I'm saying is what, what, what meaning the symbol is carrying can be quite different for different people. For some, it might be nostalgia, for some, it might be a quite different understanding of the Eucharist itself. And even if it's an unconscious action, right, they're not thinking about it or whatever, that's still kind of defeating the purpose of ritual and liturgy, which is, again, to bring us to a higher awareness. And, and to bring us to, uh, I mean, the, the, there are ways, I mean, ritual can be done, used in many ways. I have a ritual for how I, you know, when I get up in the morning, uh, what do I do first? Right. You know, do I brush my teeth? Do I take my pills? Do I, you know? But, but in liturgy, the liturgy is, is a communal rite. It is meant to, to remember, to put back together the, the, the members of the body of Christ to make us one bread, one body. Yeah. All right? So if, if, if what I am doing is fracturing that, I really need to pay, pay attention to that. And, and, and it's harder than ever to do that because we're, we are in a world and a culture. That's why this, I'm reading this book about generous thinkers. We are not generous thinkers. You say black, I say white. And there's not much of a, of a generous conversation about, well, why is that important to you? Why is this important to me? Is there, is there a, a place in the middle? We, we, we're, we've moved into a culture of of just, yeah, immediate canceling of one another. Yeah. Uh, Andrew, I wanted to ask you, the, Andrew the Younger. <laughs> um, I've known Andrew, Andrew the Elder a lot longer, and I have a, a sense for where he's coming from. But I'm wondering with you as a newer uh, presence here at the Abbey, what have you experienced, and how has this conversation spoken to you? 
Well, it's, I mean, I've experienced a lot with Father Andrew. We've got the opportunity to work together quite closely, which has been nice. And um, it's been nice to get to know him as a person even more. So a conversation like today takes you into not only who he is, but um, you know, as a person, but who he is to the Norbertine community here at the Abbey, and more than just the Norbertines, but everyone that is a part of this community here at Dallasford. Because like you opened with, the liturgy is so central to your life as Norbertines. Um, it was my first experience of the Abbey was coming to a mass here with my family. Um, and then uh, just seeing this all come together from hearing the stories of your upbringing and the centrality of food within your home and how truly ritualistic that was. I mean, you know, you're talking about making sure the space of the altar is clean from clutter. I mean, any good cook, like your mothers and grandmothers were, uh, will make sure that their space is clean, it's clear, it doesn't have old dishes and dirty things right. on it, right? And when it's served, it's served in a very intentional way. Yeah. Um, so to hear the way that uh, you're, um, you know, I'm trying to think of an analogy here. You're kind of like the master builder going into a house that's not up to code, right? And you're seeing like the way things should be and how they can be fixed. Um, it, it's very interesting to hear your perspective on liturgy combined with your experience as a person and how they come together. And it's a, just a very natural uh, evolution, if I can use that word, right? You mm -hmm. talk about from the time you were young being drawn to this to now being able to articulate not only to the community here at Dalesford, but as Abbot Dominic said to the world, liturgy with such uh, nuance, but with such relatability at the same time. You're very easy to talk to. You get your points across very clearly, very simply, and that in itself is a gift. Now, I'd like to point out that uh, liturgy, some people interpret liturgy very rigidly. Mm. Um, and Andrew is very sensitive to the, the, the rubrics, very sensitive to the to the flow and the, the purpose of the liturgy. But it, you don't feel with Andrew that it's a rigid experience. It, it's more a natural. He's a teacher. He's a teacher. So like, now I'll give the example a little behind the scenes here. When we were doing some filming last year in 2020 in our St. George Chapel, it's a very small private chapel in, in the Norbertine wing. And um, sometimes, based on what we were filming, he would have like some books or some props. And he's like, I'm really not supposed to use the altar as a prop. And you explain that. You're not just like, you can't do this, right? Thou shalt not, or thou shalt. It's an explanation. It's a teaching moment. And that in itself is something I just mm. deeply appreciate. I wanted to just ask you if you wanted to summarize anything or your last comments. No. <laughs> well, enough said. Uh, you may not, you may not want to include this in in the final, but um, a lot of people know that I'm dealing with uh, renal cancer, and I I don't know how how long, uh, you know. I keep on asking the oncologist how long how long do I have, and she says I can't tell you that. Some people live for years on this uh, medication. But I, I was thinking, especially as we got to the last part of this, I thought, this would be a very nice thing to show after I die. <laughs> uh, I think, oh, I'm, I'm, don't wait till then. No, no, no. no, but I thought, yeah, I mean, it, it, I would have never, you know, some of the stuff that came out, uh, I probably, it was there, but I, I don't know if I would have thought of it until the question. But uh, I'm, 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 I don't want to say, uh, I'm not flattered. I am 
deeply grateful for the life that I have led. I think that I have had one of the most graced lives a person could have. You know, to come from the, the, the child of four Italian immigrants uh, to being a polyglot who, you know, who has been around the world uh, to wind up as the, you know, the chair of a board of the college that, that I love, et cetera, to, you know, to have, to know the order so, so well as a result. I mean, being sent to Rome, but being at the last session of the Vatican Council, I, I, I just, I mean, I think it has been just a, a wonderful life. Yeah. Am, am I, uh, am I dissatisfied with any? That would take a whole different. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes, but yeah, I, I'm just uh, I, I'm I'm extremely graced yeah. and thankful. So I, I have one more question, two more questions. Um, did the two of you know each other growing up? No, no, no. Okay. So when was it that you met? Well, I joined in 1959, and you joined in 1966. So I was in Rome when okay. Dominic joined. So okay. we didn't. We never met until 1968. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. And my other question was, you know, you talk about having a chance to go to Rome, mm -hmm. Second Vatican Council. Did you get a sense when you were younger, let's say, not a child, teen, whatever, just when you were younger, did you get a sense that this change was coming? Not at all. Not at all. I, I, I thought one of the things that uh, drew me to the, when, in, in my age, uh, vocation directors came to Catholic schools in the eighth grade mm -hmm. to get uh, young men to come to minor seminary, right? And I was looking at the, I, well, I don't think the Jesuits, I, I was looking at the Jesuits, but the Carmelites and the Passionists. And um, my father was very much opposed to my going into the seminary. My mother was very supportive, but she was very clear I was not going to a minor seminary. All right, I was going to go to high school, and then, uh, and um, so I didn't. Um, so I in the in the summers at after Bishop Newman High School, I worked in the kitchen in the priory as a houseboy, and that I got the chance to observe the Norwegians right up close. And at that time, there was somewhere between thirty and thirty-five Norwegians in the priory virtually every one of them under the age of 40. Wow. And there was such energy and, and uh, they, uh, uh, like uh, my English uh, uh, professor, he gave me extra reading. I mean, they were very solicitous. And um, so that attracted me, but, but what attracted me, uh, so the two things that attracted me was their community life and their, their I didn't know the word liturgy then, their, you know. <laughs> There, I think I was just getting to know it, the way they prayed in common, this ritual life. Those two things really attracted me. But I, my goal was to be a high school teacher and, 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 then, and then to get to my master's in liturgy. Um, I never, I never expected. And the thing is, I, from my father's mother, I really had a sense of uh, longing to connect with my family in Italy. But I never thought that would happen. And so, no, I didn't, it wasn't like, you know, the lives of the saints, there's always some, some premonition, like 
Norbert's mother is supposed to have had a dream as he was being born that he was going to be a great archbishop. My mother, my mother, who always introduced me as in the nursing home, this is my son, the priest. He wrote the hymn for the Pope. That was her, <laughs> that was her introduction. All right. She says that when, I, when she would take me on Sundays to the basement church of St. Monica's for Mass, that I would point up to the altar and say, someday I want to be there. I don't know if this is apocryphal, uh, you know, if right. but in any event. Uh, but I do, do know that from an early age, I had this sense of, of wanting to be a priest. Yeah. But not, not that I was going to go to India and South Africa, and, you know, and, yeah. So that was well, I want to thank you uh, for oh. sharing uh, with us today, Andrew. And, um, and, and in fact, I'd like to take this opportunity to thank you for the, the, the way that you have graced our community uh, by your personal life, your intentional Christian commitment, but also in a very specific way by the way you have helped us to develop a very solid liturgy, liturgical experience here. Uh, it, it raises the bar, and uh, people who, I know that all the Norbertines, uh, they say that they try to up their game when they do the, the Sunday Mass here at the Abbey, yes, yes. Um, and that's in large measure, I think, uh, yeah. a credit to you, so right. thank you. And, and uh, also to say, I mean, the liturgy, uh, the, the, the renewal, in incorporating the changes of the Second Vatican Council happened the very beginnings. When I left for Rome, the foundations of this church were here. The church wasn't up. It was, and one of the people who really got the singing started here was Dominic. He really had, had the people singing so that we had this reputation from the beginning. In fact, very early on, it was like we were the only show in town. You know, I mean, because other, other parishes were not well, they didn't have the facilities that we had, the, yeah. the manpower and the, yeah, a great organ, a great church, you know, and yeah. So, yeah, we, but, so we know that as a community, none of us can do it alone. Right. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's, a, I listen to classical music on WRTI, uh -huh. and their line is, uh, you and us better together, you know. Mm -hmm. Amen. Amen. Beautiful way to end it. Thank you. Abbot Dominic, thank you for being with us today. Father Andrew, thank you. And uh, thank you to all our listeners, all of our viewers at home. We are very grateful for your support. No matter how you support us here at the Spring House at Dalesford Abbey, we are very grateful. Um, whether it's through your financial contributions, by sharing this content, or by watching it yourself and praying for us, we are very thankful for your participation in the spiritual life here. Um, you can catch Father Andrew at the Abbey here when he's here, when he's not <laughs> on the road uh, out to appear to do work for the college out there at St. Norbert um, or heading wherever he might be heading. So you can catch him here at the Abbey. Um, the Abbey is open for private retreats, so you can call 610-601-8702 and we can get you worked out for a retreat here. We are open for group retreat rentals as well, so you can call that same number to find out more information. And once again, we just want to thank you for being with us. Thank you for all your support, and we'll see you next time.